Hi, Issaquah Christian Church. My name is Will Denny, and I'll be guest speaking today. It's an honor to be sharing with you again. Last time I was with you, we were reading about Paul's journey to Corinth and his meeting with Aquila and Priscilla. A lot has happened since then, to say the least. Today we're going to read about one crazy sea trip. Before we jump into the word today, though, I wanted to share a brief story. Have you ever felt totally lost? And I mean really lost. The kind of loss where you start to panic and the feeling of utter hopelessness starts to set in. I think the closest I have felt to this experience uh, was when I was out dirt bike riding in the forest with my dad as a young kid, maybe 10 or 12, we'd go out uh, often without a map. And I would just trust my dad, knew where he was going, and he often did. Um, One of these trips, though, uh, we'd been out riding for hours, and it was tons of fun until it started pouring down rain. I wasn't thinking about it much, uh, but I noticed, was noticing we would ride and pause, ride and pause, and it started to get pretty foggy and cold. Eventually, I also noticed that my dad was actually starting to get kind of worried. If you knew my dad, he's a pretty steady guy, so for him to even get remotely worried was a bad sign. Uh, he was honest with me, though, and told me we were lost. We spent the next hour or so racing around trying to find some landmark but it just got harder and harder as it rained more and more and darkness started to set in as the sun was going down. I remember feeling the despair start to set in, that sinking feeling of hopelessness. I was hungry, I was cold, and I really thought we were not going to make it back home. Luckily, we made what we thought was another wrong turn and ended up right back in camp as it was really starting to get dark and we were running low on fuel. Today, we're reading about a wild sea tale where Paul and his company are going to find themselves lost at sea in a situation way more dire than what I experienced as a young boy, as he is being taken to Rome for trial. If we remember from last week, Paul just gave his testimony to King Agrippa, who found him to be innocent. However, Paul had previously appealed to Caesar to be tried in Rome. It's at this point that he is now going to be taken to Rome to be tried. I'll read the passage in its entirety, Acts 27, uh, 1 through through 32. Say a prayer as we dive in together. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of Adorantium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us, and when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia, In Pamphyla, we came to Myra and Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and traveled with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome, coasting along it with difficulty. And we came to a place called Fair Havens, which... Uh, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, 
not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempest wind, called the Northeasterner, struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Scytherus, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as they were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther they took a sounding again, and found fifteen fathoms, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern, and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat, and let it go. All right. Let me pray real quick, and we'll break this story down. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for who you are, for what you've done. Uh, we give you thanks for the scripture that we got to read to, today. And we just pray uh, that you would continue to just give us clarity as we um, try to figure out what it is that you want to speak to us today uh, through your word. We love you and we praise you, and in your name we pray. Amen. So what a wild story, right? Let me try and recap. So the story starts out with Paul being taken by a Roman centurion named Julius to board a ship sailing to Asia Minor. This is likely a small trader ship making a return journey. After a few stops, they then catch another trade ship headed to Rome with a load from Alexandria. They sail to Crete and it's now late in the year. And during this time, it's no good to try and sail. It's nearly winter and the winds are strong and the sun and stars are often behind clouds. Now, today, if we were to set sail, we'd have a GPS, probably a compass, and a well-defined map. A few clouds, no problem. But at this point in history, these things just did not exist. 
Navigators relied on the heavenly bodies, the sun, the stars, and the moon for navigating the open waters. Generally, uh, sailors would stay pretty close to the land uh, to avoid trying to navigate the open seas. Now, bear with me. I'm going to nerd out a little bit here. Uh, the devices the navigators used was something like this. So what I have here is an astrolabe. Uh, this is the one I have in my hands is a replica of a later version, uh, but it's similar to devices that uh, may have been used at the time. This device is the closest thing an ancient Roman sailor would have had to a GPS. An astrolabe uh, was used by navigators to find their position north to south, tell the time, and measure distance. This device relies on looking at the heavenly bodies for navigation. So imprinted on the surface of the device is like a mini-map of the heavens. It contains some of the most prominent constellations, the moon and the sun's position throughout the year. And then there is a sight piece, mine doesn't have this, uh, that is then used to look at a point in the sky, measure the position of the stars relative to the horizon, uh, between the angle measured taken and this mini-map on this device, a, sk a skilled navigator could determine their latitude and the time of day. But now, take away the sun and the stars, and this device doesn't really do anything other than provide a, a little anchor. The only point of reference on the open water are the sun and stars, and it's understandable why sailors would want to avoid sailing in winter when the clouds cover the sky and the winds are far more extreme. But back to our story. So the sailors arrive at a port on Crete and don't think it'll be a great place to stay for the winter. They instead try their luck and attempt to make it further west to the port of Phoenix. It's at this point that Paul expresses his concern. He's not a sailor, but understands full well the risks they are about to undertake and warns against it. Now, there is some evidence from Roman military writing at the time that navigation was considered dangerous after September 15th and generally just halted altogether by early November. Luke writes in verse 9, even the fast was already over, as Paul is about to express his concerns. Now, many scholars put the date of the fast on October 5th or as late as October 28th in this case. So this is well into the dangerous season. So we can understand why Paul uh, might be a little concerned. Unfortunately, the majority decide to press on a little further. And I want to pause for a moment here, and I kind of wonder what Paul might have been thinking. I know I would have been a bit anxious and frustrated, and rightly so. From his perspective, his life is being put in needless danger. They have already been making slow progress due to the rough conditions, and now they want to go even further as winter is quickly approaching. Paul, of course, is totally justified in his concern. Not long after a storm hits and blows the ship totally off course. They have what must have been one crazy ride as they're pushed out to sea. We see the different desperate attempts to regain control, throwing things overboard, um, trying to gain control of their sails, until in verse 20 we read, When neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. There they now were, adrift at sea with no frame of reference. It's difficult to imagine the despair that each of them may have felt. 
reading about this situation uh, makes any time I've ever felt lost look like nothing. And again, I wonder what Paul was thinking. The next part of the story really took me by surprise while I was studying this past week. I want to focus in on what Paul says next, picking back up in verse 22, where we read, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Paul recounts an encounter he had with an angel of the Lord the previous night. In this recount, we learn a couple things. First thing is that Paul must have been praying. Now, this may seem like an obvious thing for Paul to do, but I think it's important. When all hope of rescue is lost, Paul appears to have turned to God in prayer. This is not the first time Paul has been in a dire situation, and by this point, it almost appears to be a reflex to trust in God when all earthly hope is lost. I have to wonder, when the storms of life hit, where do you turn? When all hope seems lost because of the dire circumstances around you, to whom or what do you turn? For Paul, the answer is simple. Jesus. Paul trusts Jesus, and even though here he is again in yet another troubling circumstance, he turns to the one true source of hope. The second thing that struck me as I read this was what the angel says to Paul. He says, You will live to stand before Caesar, encouraging Paul and reminding him of God's mission, which will not be thwarted by the foolishness of men. This in itself, I imagine, would be encouraging to Paul. But also the angel says, And behold, God has granted you all who sail with you. This implies that Paul was petitioning for the sailors' lives. Paul was not just concerned for himself, but was likely on his knees praying that the lives of all the men on board would also be saved. Now remember, not only is Paul a prisoner on the ship, but he was needlessly put in danger because the crew decided to test their luck with his life. Yet despite this, Paul prays and petitions to God for their lives to be spared. What an example of the gospel. I can't imagine the sailors came away from this event unchanged, or at the very least were left wondering, who was this God that Paul serves? There are a few things I took away from this that I wanted to share with you. The first is simple, but I need to be reminded of it daily. Jesus is our ultimate source of hope. When the storms of life hit, and I have every reason to abandon all hope in earthly rescue, who or what is my anchor? I think a real practical way to gauge this in my own life is to pay attention. When I'm sad, what do I do or where do I go? When I'm frustrated, how do I deal with my anger? When I'm anxious, what do I find myself thinking about? When all hope was lost, Paul placed his faith in Jesus time and again, and being lost at sea was no exception. Even if the ship was to go down, Paul had full conviction he would be with Jesus. This display of faith reminds me of Hebrews 10.23, which says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Our God is a God who is faithful, and we can place our hope in him with full confidence as an anchor for our soul. 
The second thing I took away from this passage was the reminder that Jesus commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that my definition of my neighbor is often too small. In Luke 10, after Jesus gives the command to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, he is asked, And who is my neighbor? Jesus then gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. In Luke 10, 25-37, we read, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he answered, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Jesus is defining here what it means to love our neighbor and expands the definition to include even people we would otherwise probably not like to associate ourselves with. For the Jews Jesus was talking to, that included Samaritans. Loving our neighbor means to extend mercy and compassion to those we'd probably prefer not to. Jesus goes so far as to say in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more, do you, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Back to our story in Acts. In this situation, Paul finds himself, he's living this out. Rather than being frustrated and angry at his situation and the people who got him into the mess he is now in, he shows compassion by praying and petitioning for God to save those that hold him in bondage and threaten his life. I wonder if there are people in your life that often frustrate you or may even be the cause of suffering that need to be forgiven and shown compassion. I'm only too aware that this is not an easy thing to do. It doesn't happen by trying harder but allowing the truth of the gospel to sink in. To realize that we were once enemies of God, that God loved his enemies so much that he was willing to sacrifice his son to save them. This is the love and conviction uh, that has changed Paul so radically that he now has no other hope than Jesus and has the ability to pray for those who have wronged him.
I want to close with reading Hebrews 10.23 again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks. Uh, we give you thanks for the way that you continue to remain faithful to us. We give you thanks uh, for the fact that we can place an unwavering hope in you, that you are an anchor for our souls. And Father, I just ask that you would help that to just continue to sink into our hearts, that we'd really know that so deep down that, that there's no other hope but you, and that we would let that hope transform us to be able to love those around us who have maybe wronged us or put us in a, a tough situation like Paul's been in. Help us to have the same kind of love that you have, Father, for, for our enemies even. Help us to, to, to just be more and more like your son, Jesus, to walk in the light of who you are. And it's not something we can do on our own, but only by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Father, we just pray these things in your son's name. Amen.